Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Are you one of those people who likes to read ahead in the story? You know, who just can't wait for the next installment. They just have to know how things end. Well, I've got good news for you. Over at the War and Conquest podcast, we've already completed the series on the Crusades. It's been signed, sealed, delivered, wrapped up, bow on the top, shipped. I know shipped comes in like the middle of all that, but I'm on a roll right now. Leave me alone. We've got series on the first, second, third Crusades, and on the Crusader stage, which covers all of the events in between. So if you want to know the story from 1095 to the end of the Third Crusade, then the War and Conquest podcast is the place for you. And I guess if you want to know about Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, or Octavian, you can listen to those too. So if you're looking for a history show that takes itself just seriously enough to maintain accuracy, but still enjoys having a good time, come on over to War and Conquest, the show that's attempting to make history fun again. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 214, The Prince's Crusade. Last time, we watched the unfolding chaos of the People's Crusade as it violently sauntered its way from France to Nicaea. It was a tragedy from start to finish, but from a Byzantine point of view, it did have the benefit of preparing the authorities for the challenges which lay ahead. Any adjustment in their strategy, though, had to be made quickly, since the next wave of pilgrims appeared on Byzantine soil at the same time as Peter's followers were being hacked to pieces. The first major arrival in October 1096 was Hugh of Vermandois, the brother of the King of France. Anna tells us that Hugh had written to Alexius to warn him of his arrival, and we can assume that most of the senior nobles did likewise. The French prince had marched through Italy and hired boats to take his retinue across the Adriatic. Unfortunately, a storm swept his companions away, and Hugh was shipwrecked on the Byzantine coast. The governor of Dyrrhachium quickly picked him up, entertained him lavishly, and then had escorts take him straight to Constantinople to meet Alexius. This was to be Byzantine strategy. 
As best we can tell, Hugh would have been put up in the Vlachianai Palace. That's the palace which sits against the Theodosian land walls in the northwest corner of the city. After being shown to his beautiful apartments and furnished with food and clothes, he would have been introduced to the emperor. As you know, people did not often meet the emperor. At the height of their trickery, the Byzantines would bring ambassadors into the throne room to see the silent Vasilevs enthroned before them, and they would be instructed to bow right down. As their foreheads were pressed against the floor, the hydraulic throne would lift him high above them. When they were instructed to get up again, they were stunned to see the man in purple floating ever higher. Or, remember Liotprand of Cremona, our Italian correspondent, who was incensed to be kept waiting for days on end before Nicephorus Phocas would deign to let him into his company, let alone speak to him. Alexius struck a very different tone with the Crusaders. He would greet them personally and give them gifts. He also spent time with them, chatting like an equal, discussing their great journey in detail. Once they had been charmed and feasted, the business of showing suitable respect to the emperor was raised. The message, in so many words, was this. We've fed and clothed you and your men, aided your transport across the Balkans and put a little cash in your purse. There is plenty more where that came from, and we'd like to give you ten times as many gifts and keep you fed and watered throughout the rest of your pilgrimage. All you have to do is go back into the throne room, get down on your hands and knees and bow before the emperor. Then get up and swear allegiance to him. The Byzantines were well aware that their intricate rituals of submission and acclamation were alien to Latin knights. So the crusade leaders were to be carefully courted as equals before this moment of potential embarrassment. But having come all this way and enjoyed such gracious hospitality, it would be hard for them to refuse. It would be profoundly embarrassing, for one thing, but it was also practically impossible since they needed Alexius's fleet to transport them to Anatolia. As soon as Hugh had sworn his oath, he was showered with presents, and his men were given bags of coins to spend as they wished. Alexius would then return to treating him like an almost equal, but on the understanding that having sworn the oath, it was now the emperor who would call the shots. All the Latin chronicles comment on the extravagance of Alexius's gifts. It's another example of the power of the Byzantine tax system. By controlling the gold supply, the palace could produce an array of presents that even the brother of the King of France was impressed by. The key to this strategy working was to divide and conquer. The Byzantines tried to keep the four contingents of crusaders apart, and then tried to separate their leaders from their armies. Once in the palace alone, it would be much harder for them to refuse the emperor's requests. Antony Cordelis elaborates. The emperor's strategy was to bring the leaders into the city, in advance of their armies, and separate from each other, so that each might be won over piecemeal from a weaker bargaining position. 
The emperor wanted to prevent them from coming together and forming plans of their own before he had the chance to put his own framework of patronage and supreme leadership in place. But once a few crusaders had sworn, he could then admit new arrivals to their company, for they would naturally exert peer pressure on them to do the same. Then Alexius could ask them to move their armies across the sea to Kibitos, where they would pose even less of a threat to Constantinople. End quote. The four major groups of crusaders arrived in Byzantium one after another at separate intervals, which Peter Frankopan believes is evidence of Alexius's planning, in part to alleviate supply problems and in part to keep the contingents from linking up in advance. This was a very serious and very delicate business. Alexius had observed the mood of the People's Crusade. Their attitude to delay had been violent. The Emperor could not allow thousands of armed men to gather listlessly outside of Constantinople. He had to keep them moving and get them over to Asia as soon as possible. At the same time, though, he couldn't afford to waste this opportunity. If they crossed to Anatolia without imperial direction, the Turks would pick them off and he might never get another chance to assault Nicaea. He had to get their leaders on board and under his direction. Hence his decision to drop much of the formality of imperial receptions. Alexius had fought alongside Western troops his entire life. He was no palace brat. He could talk to soldiers like one of their own. The future of his reign and the safety of his capital were very much on the line in 1096, and Komnenos was determined to preserve both. This strategy involved a lot of moving parts. As we discussed last time, food and supplies had to be ready to greet new arrivals at the border, as did imperial troops and interpreters, and then as each crusader army moved through the empire, they had to be monitored. Byzantine soldiers had to shadow them to try and stop them from raiding the countryside, and messengers had to be intercepted to prevent communication between different groups, all of which had to be done with a smile to stop hostility being generated. The so-called Prince's Crusaders had obeyed Urban's instructions and set off after the appointed day in August. Hugh of Vermandois arrived on the Adriatic shore in October, and the rest would follow slowly during that autumn and winter. Next to appear was Godfrey of Bouillon with the Eastern Contingents. As you'll recall, the East in this case refers to the East of Francia, so those living either side of the Rhine River. Now that the harvest was in, Godfrey was able to negotiate with the King of Hungary and took the same route as the People's Crusade. At about the same time, Bohemond and the Italian Normans landed at Derechium, which we'll talk about momentarily. Godfrey was greeted at Belgrade with a special license which allowed his army to buy from markets that were closed to the locals, and a huge wagon of coins was handed over to help his men buy what they needed. Godfrey's force therefore passed peacefully south down the military road. Their next stop was at Nis, or Nish, 
where more exclusive markets and free cash were waiting, along with personal gifts for Godfrey from Alexius, which made a good impression. Two points are worth making here. The free cash was very sensible practice by the Byzantine authorities. The money was all spent on food and supplies, and would therefore be handed back to the government as tax in due course. The Crusaders understood this, but were still pleased with the apparent generosity of their hosts. Second is that the system of supply being used was most likely the existing infrastructure of the Byzantine army. Warehouses of food hadn't been created overnight, and Antony Cordelis is keen to point out that the Crusaders were being treated like a Roman army from the start, and would continue to be until they reached Antioch. Written with bitter hindsight, several Latin historians attempt to blacken Alexius's name, but few make complaints about the quantity of provisions they enjoyed on the road. As Godfrey reached Adrianople, he began to hear worrying rumours. The scuttlebutt was that Hugh of Vermandois was being held in the palace against his will. Unwilling to be lured into a gilded cage, Godfrey sent messengers ahead demanding that the French prince be released. To press the matter, he allowed some of his men to raid the countryside. Alexius dispatched a string of ambassadors, mostly Westerners in Byzantine service, to talk Godfrey down. This sort of misunderstanding was bound to happen, given the language barrier and the vagueness that was baked into the crusading mission. Urban had done his part well. He had stirred up a great mission to Jerusalem, one that must pass through Constantinople first. But beyond that, the Crusaders were on their own. The Pope couldn't lead them from Rome, and though he'd sent Adhemar as his representative, the military nobility weren't going to take orders from a bishop. This left several unanswered questions. Who would direct the pilgrimage? What route would they take? What targets would they hit on the road to Jerusalem? How would they feed themselves? The simplest answer to all these queries was that the Byzantine emperor would take charge. But that led to an uncomfortable status clash. The crusade leaders were all independent lords who bowed to no one back home. They were also puffed up with pride. Here they were, recognised by 20,000 of their peers as the best man to be the Christ-sponsored leader on this great quest. Yet now, they were being asked to abandon their position of power and come before this foreign king to debase themselves by grovelling at his feet. Godfrey's army moved forward again, and arrived at Constantinople just before Christmas. But the Lord of Bouillon refused to enter the city. Embassies went back and forth, but to no avail. Godfrey was playing chicken with the Emperor. Maybe Alexius would back down and let him cross to Anatolia as an independent lord under nobody's control. The stakes were getting higher every day. Godfrey's huge army was a potent threat to the capital. Not only were they hoovering up a lot of food, but dark whispers were heard in both camps. Alexius's advisers warned him that Byzantine rebels were bound to approach Godfrey to see if they could use his forces to overthrow the Komnenoi, while men told Godfrey that gifts from the emperor might be poisoned. 
Meanwhile, Bohemond was marching along the Via Ignatia. Two Latin chronicles tell us that he sent messages to Godfrey, suggesting they align their armies, perhaps to take Constantinople by force. With the clock ticking, Alexius ordered that the markets be shut to Godfrey's men. This was a bold move that was bound to provoke violence. Sure enough, Godfrey's men began to ransack suburban palaces to get the supplies they needed. Alexius ordered troops out to stop them. The Byzantine contingent was commanded by Nicephorus Vurianios the Younger, Anna's future husband. Men dropped dead on both sides before the crusaders returned to their camp. Winter was now beginning to bite, and after a few more days without supplies, Godfrey announced that he would enter the palace if a suitable exchange of prisoners took place to ensure his safety. Alexius responded in extraordinary fashion. He offered his nine-year-old son and heir to the throne, John, as a hostage. This detail is not in Anna's account, perhaps to protect the emperor. If true, it was an astonishing gesture of good faith and desperation. If the crusaders were feeling outraged that they had come all this way to help and were being treated like criminals, then there was nothing more that Alexius could do to show his own humility and gratitude while sticking to his strategy. Whatever exactly happened, Godfrey and his lieutenants entered the palace, swore an oath of loyalty to Alexius, and were showered with gifts. By the end of February 1097, the eastern Franks had been ferried across to Kibitos, out of reach of Bohemond and the rest of the Crusaders. Alexius held his nerve, and Godfrey blinked first. Before we turn our attention to Bohemond, we need to have a word about these oaths. All the crusade leaders would eventually swear one to Alexius, and when the two sides fall out at Antioch, the nature of these promises becomes a subject of much scholarly debate. Alexius considered the oaths to be vital. Since he wasn't going on crusade, he had to have some means of controlling the mission. He couldn't rely on the good intentions of the crusaders. It was Alexius, remember, who had captured Roussel de Bayeux back in the 1070s. In the wake of Manzikert, the Norman captain had carved out his own fief in Anatolia. Alexius's behaviour towards the Crusaders was clearly informed by that experience. The oaths and acts of submission were accompanied by overwhelming generosity and personal attention. The Emperor wanted the Crusade leaders to feel that he was their friend and would richly reward them if they did what he asked. Bowing obediently before the Emperor was standard practice in Byzantium, but as the authorities had come to deal with more and more Westerners, they had adopted a formula to suit their customs. So Anna says that each Crusade leader made the customary oath of the Latins meaning the oaths that had been regularly sworn by Western mercenaries serving in the imperial army. Men would place their hand on Bibles or relics and promise to follow the emperor's orders for the terms of their service. There is also mention of Alexius adopting the leading crusaders. Again, this was standard Byzantine practice, implying a spiritual fatherhood, 
similar to ceremonies we've seen with Armenian and Bulgarian rulers in the past. These oaths were understood differently, though, by Latin historians, who described them in feudal terms. So the Crusaders are said to have paid homage to Alexius, offering him fealty, essentially making him their feudal lord, who could order them about, yes, but who owed them things in return in a give-and-take relationship. We can't really reconstruct the specifics to anyone's satisfaction. The Romans knew that the Crusaders were not ordinary mercenaries. No court titles were handed out, no official salaries agreed, so the oaths were not simply customary. Each side seems to have interpreted them through the prism of their own culture and their own interests. When the rupture between them comes and Bohemond refuses to hand Antioch over to the Romans, each will claim that the other had broken their word. And this was the key clause. As part of their promise, the Crusaders swore to hand over any cities they captured to imperial agents. Though it's not specified anywhere, it seems possible that Alexius included in that all cities up to and including Jerusalem. Why not? It had been Roman once, never relinquish a claim. Though in reality, it seems like Alexius wasn't too fussed about much beyond Antioch. The odds of the First Crusade reaching Jerusalem were low. If they succeeded, the emperor would have a claim on all that they'd achieved. If they died in the Syrian desert, that wasn't really his problem. If any of you are wondering, hey, why wouldn't the Byzantines want Jerusalem back, then forget it. Jerusalem is much closer to Egypt than Constantinople. It was just too far away to be a practical consideration and the reason Alexius needed the Crusades so badly was his lack of men. He barely had enough troops to keep the Balkans safe. There was no way he could spare the garrisons to hold anything beyond Antioch and its surrounding ports. So we turn to Bohemond. Bohemond was, of course, the son of Robert Giscard and had fought Alexius in the Balkans just 12 years earlier. Needless to say, eyebrows were raised when word came that Bohemond had taken the cross. A man who'd had no problem slaughtering fellow Christians was now so perturbed by their ill-treatment that he was willing to journey to Jerusalem. How lovely. Still, many Normans had switched sides and served Byzantium well over the past century. Why not Bohemond? The Romans waited anxiously for his arrival at Dyrrhachium in October 1096. Bohemond's contingent were relatively small, perhaps two to 4,000 men, far smaller than the armies accompanying the other major leaders. They set off along the Via Ignatia peacefully enough, but then suddenly left the main road and made for Castoria in northern Greece, where they spent Christmas. Castoria, as those of you binging will remember, was Bohemond's stronghold during his war with Byzantium. The locals were not pleased to see him, and the Normans began taking food as they needed it. Eventually, they even attacked a community of Paulicians living nearby. It's difficult to know exactly what was happening. Anna doesn't mention this detour. 
Professor Cordelis concludes that Bohemond was testing imperial defences, seeing if a winter spent in the Balkans would provoke Alexius into an unjustified attack. This theory is supported by the two Latin chronicles claiming that Bohemond sent messages to Godfrey, seeing if they could coordinate their forces. With nothing shaking loose, though, the Normans rejoined the Via Ignatia in the new year. They were met on the road by the remnants of the Pechenegs, who Alexius had settled in the Western Balkans after defeating them. The horse archers had been instructed to shadow the Normans and shoot anyone who dared to leave the main road again. Bohemond decided at this point to play nice. He left his group in the care of his nephew Tancred and followed imperial agents to Constantinople with a handful of companions. Anna gives us a fun description of Bohemond's first few hours in the palace. Alexius greeted him warmly and reminded him of his exploits on the field of battle. I was indeed an enemy then, said Bohemond, but now I come of my own free will as your majesty's friend. After chatting for a little longer, Alexius indicated that Bohemond should get some rest. The Normans were taken to their apartments, and some attendants brought platters of food and drink. They also offered Bohemond some uncooked meat in case he'd prefer to prepare his own dinner, the implication being clear. If you think the food might be poisoned, then here is an alternative means of sustenance. Anna presents Bohemond as cunning and duplicitous throughout, so in fine comic fashion he tells his friends to tuck into the feast while he has the uncooked meat made up for his dinner. You can almost imagine him watching them carefully to see if anyone keels over unexpectedly. You sure you don't want some, Bohemond? No, no, I'm good. The next day, everyone woke up feeling fine, and Bohemond swore the oath with no complaint. He was rewarded with a literal room full of gifts. But then, it's easy to make promises when you're an inveterate liar, isn't it? That's what Anna says. With hindsight as her guide, she is in no doubt that Bohemond always planned to stab Alexius in the back. And given his odd behaviour at Castoria, we might be inclined to agree with her. However, the consensus of modern scholars is that Alexius and Bohemond came to a genuine agreement that day, and that for a while, Bohemond acted as a loyal imperial agent. Anna tells us that Bohemond asked if he could be made domestic of the East, essentially the senior Byzantine military officer in Anatolia, but that Alexius demurred, suggesting that in time perhaps that would happen. A couple of Latin chronicles report that Alexius promised Bohemond lands and a command beyond Antioch. More furious scholarly speculation has surrounded this discussion and the subsequent rupture at Antioch, where Bohemond will seize the city for himself and refuse to turn it over to Alexius. Here's what we think we know. Bohemond entered the palace in April 1097. He ended up staying for a month, longer than any other crusade leader. He is reported as being on friendly terms with Alexius, and all the sources agree that the two discussed some kind of position in the Byzantine military that Bohemond might take on. Once the crusade begins its march through Anatolia, 
the small Byzantine contingent that accompany them will camp next to the Normans, clearly interacting with them as if their interests were closely aligned. Then, when Alexius finally defeats Bohemond over a decade from now, Anna talks about a treaty that Bohemond had made with Alexius back in 1097, slightly contradicting her earlier claim that Alexius merely fobbed him off with words. So what is the scholarly consensus on all this? Many now argue that Alexius did make some kind of deal with Bohemond. What form that took is up for debate. Some argue that Bohemond swore an intimate oath, essentially making him a Byzantine officer. Others suggest it was an agreement contingent on the recovery of Antioch. Either way, the emperor put some faith in Bohemond to act on his behalf during the crusade. So why would Alexius do this? Why would he contemplate trusting a man who had tried to kill him a decade earlier, and whose father had been instrumental in taking Italy away from the empire? I will give you ten reasons in quick succession in order to keep this brief. 1. Norman captains had a long history in the Roman army. Roussel, Crepin, Hervé Frangopoulos. 2. They were ideal recruits, tough, resourceful, relentless. 3. Bohemond was the only crusade leader who had actually fought Turkic steppe archers. Ironically, they were the men who were serving Alexius during their Balkan War. 4. Bohemond was a man in search of a new role. His lands back in Italy were small and contested. He had clearly come east looking for a better position. 5. Bohemond needed imperial support in order to achieve his goals. Not only was his contingent small, but they were not necessarily loyal to him. He'd recruited them as he'd travelled. Without Alexius's money and prestige attached to him, Bohemond might get pushed aside by the more powerful nobles. 6. Alexius needed new recruits. He was very short of men of Bohemond's capabilities. 7. Turning former enemies into loyal servants was what Byzantium did. Think of all the Armenian and Bulgarian nobles who have switched sides in the past two centuries. 8. In fact, the most recent men to flip and become imperial officers were Bohemond's own men. As you may recall, after Giscard's death, the Byzantines offered copious bribes to get men to switch sides. Many did, and were still serving the empire now, as Bohemond entered the palace. 9. Alexius wanted a man on crusade to look after his interests. He would be sending a small Byzantine detachment, yes, but they might be unable to sway the Latin leaders. Bohemond, who had an outstanding reputation as the son of Robert Giscard, would make his voice heard. And 10. Bohemond probably spoke Greek. Anna describes their dialogue without interpreters being involved. And given Bohemond's subjects in Apulia were mostly Greek speakers, there's every chance he spoke it well enough to converse directly with the emperor. No other crusade leader could do this, giving Bohemond a huge advantage in terms of developing a relationship with Alexius and his officers. It seems likely then that the two came to some arrangement. Whether either fully trusted the other, we'll never know. But for now, both had what they wanted, and Bohemond would publicly serve Alexius's interests. 
Next to arrive was Raymond of Toulouse and the southern French contingent. Raymond's group had the toughest journey of all. For reasons that aren't entirely clear, they marched through Croatian and Serbian territory and were attacked repeatedly, en route. Then once they were on imperial roads, they were assaulted again by the Pechenegs. Apparently, Raymond's wealthy entourage were too tempting a target, and a group of Pechenegs tried to rob Adamar, the Bishop of Lepuy. Already fuming, Raymond's troops then sacked a Roman town when the inhabitants refused to open their markets to the crusade. When the Count of Toulouse arrived at Constantinople later in April, he was understandably disgruntled. Despite Alexius's charm offensive, Raymond refused to swear allegiance to him. As one of the richest landowners in France, he wasn't used to bowing to anyone, and he clearly had plans to stay in the Holy Land once this was over. Any oath to Alexius would limit his freedom of movement. This prompted an aggressive response from Bohemond, perhaps acting as Alexius's agent. The Norman put serious pressure on Raymond to conform, the start of a rivalry that would last throughout the journey to Jerusalem. Eventually, the Count agreed to swear a watered-down version of the oath, promising not to harm Alexius or his possessions. The Emperor was satisfied, and the southern Franks began to move over to Kibitos. The last to appear were the contingents from northern Francia. They crossed from Italy in April and took the Via Ignatia with no reported problems. Robert of Flanders, Robert of Normandy and Stephen of Blois, all swore allegiance to Alexius with no argument. Stephen of Blois is a key source at this time because he wrote letters home to his wife that are untainted by later controversy. In them, he praises Alexius's generosity in glowing terms. The gifts and warm welcome certainly worked on him. By June 1097, then, all of the Crusaders had been safely transported to Kibitos and were heading for Nicaea. It might not sound like much of a triumph, but the transfer of the Crusaders from Europe to Asia was a major victory for Alexius. The logistics of feeding, housing and transporting so many troops would have been quite beyond most states. Remember that Godfrey's men had arrived at the capital at Christmas, To keep an army fed and happy for six months throughout winter was no mean achievement. When you add in the potential for violent clashes between the two sides, the vagueness of the crusading mission and Alexius's vulnerable political position, this must rank as one of the great diplomatic successes in Byzantine history. You only have to think about what happened when the Fourth Crusade camped outside the land walls to realise what had been achieved. Though he played the part of wealthy patron to the stars, there was quite a lot of desperation in Alexius's behaviour. Giving his son as a hostage, adopting a sworn enemy as a friend. We often gloss over this part of the crusade because we know it all ends well, but there was every chance that something truly horrible could have happened, and Alexius went to great lengths to make sure that it didn't. Anna describes one of his meet-and-greets in the palace, Alexius had got up from his throne in order to mingle with the Latin nobility. Not knowing his place, one knight sat on the throne. 
His comrades quickly shooed him off, but as he got up, he audibly remarked that Komnenos didn't look like much of an emperor to him. After having the slur quietly translated, Alexius simply greeted the man warmly and began to explain to him what fighting the Turks would really be like. Though it's a vignette designed to contrast the good grace of her father with the uncouth behaviour of a barbarian, there's probably a lot of truth in the anecdote. In the past, such behaviour could have seen the knight executed, but Alexius was swallowing a lot of pride in order to benefit the empire. He needed this man and his companions, and he needed him to take the Turks seriously. Only by informing and coordinating the Crusaders properly would this unprecedented mission succeed. Next time, Alexius informs and coordinates the Crusade as best he can as they attempt to capture the city of Nicaea. The Crusaders will throw themselves enthusiastically against its defences, only to discover that those late antique Romans, they really knew how to build a wall. For those of you who want more Crusades and more details from a non-Byzantine perspective, check out the War and Conquest podcast by Neil Eckhart. As you heard at the start of today's episode, he's already covered the First Crusade, the Crusader States which it established, and the Third Crusade. Warandconquest.com is where you want to go, or search for War and Conquest wherever you get your podcasts.